I want to go ahead and invite our children to Children's Church, uh, just a more age-appropriate setting them for them to hear the scriptures. And uh, while they're going, let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we do need you. Um, as we sang this morning, uh, where else can we go? Uh, Ramey's reading from John was just spot on. Is sometimes your teachings are difficult. Sometimes they're hard. Sometimes we wrestle with them. But where else are we going to go? Um, we have to continue to wrestle with you. And so, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you help us to wrestle well and, uh, and wrestle in faith, reaching for understanding and, uh, and growing in our trust of you. And Father, along those same lines to that same degree, uh, I want to pray for uh, the uh, Southern Baptist Convention and their big annual meeting coming up this week. Uh, Lord, we're not Southern Baptist, uh, but we are a kindred evangelical group. And we just pray for their, uh, their annual meeting that, Lord, you would lead that, the largest Protestant denomination in, in uh, the U.S., you would lead them well, that you would uh, raise up leaders who would be seeking after you. And Father, I pray for them, especially as uh, this annual convention happens under the shadow of uh, sexual harassment and rape and other allegations and um, past presidents uh, seeking to cover those things up. Lord, um, sin never does well covered up. It never goes away. It festers, it grows, it makes us ill. And so, Lord, for that denomination, I pray that you would root out that sin and that they would come to a public confession and apology. And Lord, that as a denomination, if this is even possible for a denomination, they would experience repentance. And Lord, um, heal them and help them to, uh, to continue the Great Commission. And Lord, I pray for us as well, whatever hidden sins we have, Lord, would you help us to confess and acknowledge them? Uh, Lord, we, uh, we are broken people. We are people who are seeking after our Savior. And Lord, we need your help. Um, Lord, we need you. And where else can we go? Lord, would you be with us now as we open your word and hear what you have to say to us? Open our hearts and our minds to understand and to believe. Grant us faith, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going through Acts, and um, what I've said is kind of the theme of Acts is Jesus' disciples making disciples. And that was because when we went through Luke, we saw Jesus, uh, what Luke was telling us in the stories that he was recounting about Jesus' ministry is he's showing us what it means to be a disciple. So Luke writes the book of Acts, and he just kind of continues that forward. Uh, the book of Acts is just now saying, okay, Jesus made these disciples. Now Jesus has ascended into heaven, and he's sending his disciples out to make disciples. So we're at chapter 4, and what we saw last week was Peter's second great sermon. Uh, the day of Pentecost was this tremendous sermon that Peter gave, and there was a gigantic response to it. 3,000 people uh, believed in Jesus and sought baptism that day. Amazing results. Um, at the end of chapter three, or at the end of chapter two, um, Luke kind of summarizes what happened after that. And he said that they did things like devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer and to breaking of bread, and that many signs and wonders were done at the hands of the disciples or the apostles. And so at the end of the chapter there, he kind of summarizes what came next. And what I said in chapter three was he kind of backs up then and he says, let me give you an example of what comes next. So Peter and John go into the temple and heal a man who has been lame since birth. And then they begin teaching in the temple. And so that was kind of exactly what Peter had just said. So now we get to chapter 4. What's the result? Well, on the day of Pentecost, it was 3,000 people cut to the heart and said, what shall we do? And they turn to Christ and they seek baptism. 
we get a little bit different response. And what I think Luke is trying to paint for us here is when we're faithful with the gospel, we'll get different responses. There will be different responses from different people. And even in this one, it's kind of a mixed bag. We'll see that as we go. But what we're going to see this morning is opposition to the gospel and then opposition to the opposition. So that's basically what it, how it breaks down. So let's take a look, starting in chapter 4, uh, right at the beginning. While Peter and John are still preaching, they're standing in the temple courts and they're teaching about Jesus Christ, um, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come upon them and they were greatly annoyed. I just love that description. They, they come upon these two guys teaching about Jesus and it greatly annoys them. Well, who is the captain of the, uh, captain of the temple? What does that mean? Well, in the temple, there was a common agreement between the Jews and the Romans that the Gentiles would not be allowed in the temple courts. They might go in on extreme occasions because they're Romans and they're going to do whatever they want. But generally speaking, they were respectful of this religion and they would let them have their, their special place. But if the Romans weren't in their keeping guard, who was? So they had a, a special group of temple police, if you will that kept things under control. So if a Gentile wandered in, they would you know, sound the alarm and, and chase him out. Or if anything untold was going on in the, in the temple, that would be the person. So this person that shows up is called the captain of the temple. He's essentially in charge of that police force that policed the temple courts. And when you go back and look at it in history, this was like the second most important person in the temple. There was the high priest who was the big daddy. He made all the decisions. And then his arm, his, his, his right-hand man was the, temp, the, the uh, temple captain. So this is a pretty important person that shows up. And the other person that shows up, or the other group that show up, are the Sadducees. And uh, we met them when we met through Luke. Uh, the Sadducees were the priestly clan, kind of a priestly group. They tended to be very wealthy. It was a small group, but they had a lot of influence. And so these two come upon Peter and John as they're proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And it's the resurrection from the dead that really mashes the Sadducees' buttons because they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in spirits. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe anything outside the five books of Moses. And so when, uh, when these guys are preaching about the resurrection of the dead, and we heard how they preached about the resurrection of the dead. They pointed right at Jesus and say, this Christ whom you killed, God has raised. So it wasn't mere theology. It wasn't the possibility of resurrection. It was pointing at an empty tomb and saying, it happens. So this would obviously really irritate the Sadducees because they've decided that doesn't happen. Doesn't this sound familiar? Of course resurrection doesn't happen. That's not possible. Therefore, if a resurrection happens, it didn't happen. It sounds really familiar. It feels sort of contemporary at this point. Um, so they're really irritated at them. They arrest them and they put them in custody. Uh, so they're, they're, the, the temple police show up and they haul them off. In verse 3, it says they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. I bet you didn't even notice that when Chris read it, did you? It's a total throwaway sentence. Does it have any impact on the entire story that it was the next day? Zero. Why is it there? Because Luke is a historian. Luke is paying attention to these details. So this is one of those little clues that if you pay attention, you go, wait a minute, this isn't fiction. If Luke was making this up, he wouldn't have included a little detail like that. It's a distraction from the story. It slows us down. So I just found that helpful to remember that Luke is recording history, not making up a story. So they're put in jail to the next day. 
The great news is, though, even through their preaching at this point, uh, many of those who heard believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. So if you do the math, it was 3,000 on Pentecost, it's 5,000 now, so it must have been 2,000 that day, right? Well, there's no guarantee that this is like the day after Pentecost. This may be a month later. We're not sure. Whatever happens, what Luke is really focusing our attention on is the church had explosive growth on the day of Pentecost and continued to grow. So even by this point now, the, the, the number of believers has grown to 5,000. That's pretty good growth rate. Um, however, let's pause for a second and consider this. How many disciples are there in the world right now at this point in Luke's story? 5,000, and let's say that's not including the 120 disciples that were in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. So let's say round it up 5,200. Let's be generous and say there's probably more, so 5,500. In the entire world, 5,000 people believe in Jesus Christ. It would be extraordinarily easy at this point for the church to be extinguished. Rome could take care of 5,000 that quick. It, it wouldn't be a big deal. The church is extraordinarily vulnerable at this point. And yet, do you see what Peter did when he went out and preached? Did he couch it in maybes and yeah buts? He nails it. He is just bold as anything. And what we're going to see as we go through this is he ups the ante. It's not just Jesus was raised from the dead. He's going to up it up to even more and, and, and continue to ramp up the truth of the gospel in, in clarity as a ringing bell in this confusion. And so the next day when they gather in Jerusalem, Ananus and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and the high priestly family and the rulers and the elders, I counted there are 11 people listed in this section who are in opposition to two people. There's 11 people. And if you look at the group of people, these folks that are mentioned, Annas, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, they're all high priestly family folks. These are the most powerful people in the temple. The elders are the rulers of the people, probably wealthy merchants, but also having an influence in the community. Uh, the scribes, the police, those arrayed against Peter at this point are the finest. They are the highest, the most powerful. It would be like if you engaged somebody on the street and were talking with them, and all of a sudden what showed up was critical scholars from Europe who come in and explain to you the, the ancient history of the ancient documents that you're quoting and, and how they were fabricated and put together and all of this, and, and another professor who studied ancient Near East archaeology and can tell you the history of all of the uh, Second Temple Judaism period and, and when things happened, and, and another scholar who has studied Greek from the uh, classical period all the way up through modern Greek and can explain to you all the nuances in the words, and they, they all appear against you as you're standing there trying to explain who Jesus is. It would be intimidating, wouldn't it? I just intimidated myself. That's pretty intimidating stuff. But Peter, it, he just stands there. And who is Peter? A fisherman. A Galilean fisherman. Galilee was backwoods, man. That would be like a literal, Little Rock truck driver. You know, not a well-known, highly respected area. Peter's a Galilean fisherman, and he's standing there in front of these people with PhDs and degrees and uh, authority, political and uh, societal and everything, standing there and looking at them. And they're all right. This is what has to come against the church, is that kind of power and that kind of authority. So these are the people who are standing in opposition to them, and they demand to know, by what power or by what name did you do this? 
How dare you heal a man who's been lame since birth? Explain to us how you did that. And so Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Peter, Galilean fisherman, filled with the Holy Spirit, addresses them. Now, remember when we talked in chapter 2, we talked about the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a force. So this isn't like God's force came over top of Peter and he did a puppet show. This is God the Holy Spirit filled Peter with the power, the wisdom, and the understanding to address these critical scholars. And, and it's exactly what Jesus had promised. Luke told us in chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, he told us that Jesus said, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't get much more authority than this, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. Why? For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, now addresses them. So you're on the street corner and all these critical scholars array themselves before you and what do you do? You open your mouth and talk. Don't worry about it. It's not a matter of, do I have exactly the right answers for every single question that could possibly come up? First of all, in apologetics, when you're, when you're discussing the faith, it's okay to say, I don't know. That's not a loss. It's okay to tell somebody, wow, that's a great question. I had never considered that. Let me get back to you on it. That's okay. That's not, not spiritual. That's honest. And what's kind of interesting is as you talk, you might wind up coming up with the answer in about a minute because all of a sudden you'll cover some scriptures that you hadn't thought of. So when we're engaging people, when we're sharing the faith, when we're talking to people about our, why, are you, why would you believe in Jesus? Don't fuss, don't fret over what you have to say. Here's Peter, and he's going to address these folks and really shut them down. They're not going to be able to answer him by the end of this. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by this man, by him, this man is standing before you well. Peter does not back down. Peter is dead sure that it is by the power of Jesus Christ that these things happen. And it fills him with hope. It fills him with the power to announce this truth. There is an absolute truth in the world. And Peter announces it to them. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God raised up. Whether you like it, whether you agree with it, whether you think it's, it's fanciful or not, here is absolute truth. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised up. And do you want proof of that? Do you want authenticity? you want me to authenticate that for you? Behold the man standing before you. This man in 40 years has never stood on these two feet. This man since his birth has never walked, and he's standing next to me walking and leaping and praising God. Do you want proof that this truth is truth? He's standing here. Peter is Bold. Peter is ready to announce this. But Peter takes it up a notch. He doesn't just say the resurrection is true. Listen to his next statement. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. 
And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter just ramped it up another notch. Not only does he say this, Jesus is risen from the dead, but now he says, your only hope is him. There is no other name under heaven given by which man must be saved. So he's looking these, these, these people in the face with their fancy robes and their authority and their power, and he's saying, you are in deep trouble. There is one name under heaven by which you can be saved. That's Jesus Christ. This is called the exclusivity of the gospel. And one of the complaints about evangelicals is we claim exclusivity. We believe that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. That's what an evangelical, that's part of what an evangelical believes. Evangelicalism is messy. It's hard to define. It, it has problems. I think it's a design feature. I think it was meant to be that way. Um, and so when people are trying to do research on, on evangelicals, whatever that is, they have to come up with definitions. And so Lifeway Research, it's a part of the Southern Baptist Convention, they came up with statements. I think there's four statements that uh, they would use to determine, are you an evangelical? Instead of just saying, are you evangelical? Yes, I am. They say, well, do you believe these four things? And if they believe those four things, then they go, okay, then you qualify as an evangelical. Uh, one of them is, Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of sin. That's how Lifeway defines it. And this is one of the questions they would ask somebody if they say they're an evangelical. The uh, National Association of Evangelicals has got um, a little bit more elaborate one, but they say the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as making possible the redemption of humanity. So they're looking to Jesus' um, uh, uh, work on the cross as making it possible that sense of exclusivity. Our, our denomination's statement of faith, Evangelical Free Church, we, we say it in two different places in two slightly different ways in our statement of faith. One of them says, only through, Jesus, only through God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. Only through Jesus. And then the second place we talk about it, it says, his atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for salvation. So this is one of the areas where evangelicalism gets in hot water with contemporary culture is how can you be so, how can you be so uh, intolerant to say that, uh, that all these other people aren't going to make it because they don't believe the same thing you believe? Um, and, and aren't there multiple paths to get to, to God? Aren't there multiple ways? How can you be so arrogant as to say that yours is the only way, that you're, you're so stuck up you think you're right? That, that's a common accusation. And I think it's a good question. I think it's a fair question. So let's stop for a second and say, what if there are multiple paths to God? What if all roads lead to the top of the mountain, as people like to say? Are, are there any problems with that approach? I mean, isn't that just much more gracious to say that, you know, however you get there, you get there? Um, I think there's some problems with, with adopting that, with saying that all paths lead to the top of the mountain. First of all, if there are 14 paths to God, then Satan or human beings could invent 15, 16, and 17. Now, when you step back and you look at that group, first of all, you don't know how many are accurate. You're assuming all of them are, but three of them are fake. Is that helpful to tell somebody, well, you, you might be on the right path? That's just not particularly helpful. If all paths lead to the top, fabrications could come up. 
And you have no grounds to discriminate between them because you've accepted all these conflicting truths. It's, it's really difficult. Here's another problem. What if I start out on path A because of the country I'm born in, the family I'm born to, the, the background that I have, I start out on path A and I start moving my way up the mountain on path A, but then I move, my family immigrates, and now I'm in a different country with a different religion, different setting, and I switch from A to G. And then I progress the rest of the way up the mountain on path G. What happens if there's something really important on path A I hadn't got to, but where I cross over to path G, we've already covered that. Uh-oh, I missed something. Now, I'm not sure that this path that I'm currently on is going to lead all the way up the mountain. So it can be a problem because if you shift, for whatever reason, you could wind up missing something. And if there are multiple paths, and I'm not an expert on all of them, how can I help anybody find the right one? Unless I know all religions and understand all the intricacies of every other religion, if all these paths lead to the top of the mountain, I have to know them all if I'm expected to help anybody. So the way that works out is, well, you don't help anybody. You just mind your own business. You, you just let them figure it out on their own. They'll get there. It's not your business to tell them how. It's not very helpful. It's, it's not very loving to tell somebody, hey, I'm going up the mountain, see ya. Um, if they're struggling or if they're having problems, so these multiple path idea, it sounds very generous, it sounds very egalitarian, very, very freeing, but it has some significant problems. And the other problem with it is believing in multiple paths. Um, in his book, The Reason for God, Tim Keller uh, talked about this, and I like the way he summed it up briefly. He said, the noted religion scholar John Hick has written that once you become aware that there are many other equally intelligent and good people in the world who hold different beliefs from you, and that you will not be able to convince them otherwise, then it's arrogant for you to continue to try to convert them or to hold your view to be the superior truth. So, so Hick is saying once you become aware that other people honestly, sincerely believe something different from you, um, it's, it's arrogant to think that you're right and they're wrong. So here's how Keller interprets it. He says, once again, there is an inherent contradiction. Most people in the world don't hold to John Hick's view of religion, that all religions are equal and valid, and many of them are equally as good and intelligent as he is and unlikely to change their views. So Hick says, if you don't do this, you're, you're snotty and you're, you're intolerant. And yet there are many people who are just as smart, just as good, and just as nice as John Hick who don't agree with him. That would make the statement all religions claims to have um, all religious claims to have a better view of things are arrogant and wrong to be, on its own terms, arrogant and wrong. So you can't argue that way. Even even if you're going to argue that we have to be tolerant of each other, if we have to uh, be kind to each other and open to each other like that, even that argument fails on its own ground. So there's a problem with this. So when Peter says there is no other name on earth by which men must be saved. It's not bad news. It's actually helpful. It can be one fact, one group of, one body of data can be analyzed and accepted or rejected rather than having to now press on to uh, uh, item number two and item number three and item number four because equal, all are equally valid. So there are benefits then to what I would call e evangelical exclusivity. 
the belief that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. There's some benefits to it. First of all, it's surety. The surety, the, the, the absolute surety of this is we're not standing at the bottom of a mountain looking at competing paths, and we have to ascend the mountain. The mountain came down to us. God came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ, not to tell us all paths are the same, but to say, there is a path and I'm making it for you. Follow me. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who came to us to show us the path. The mountain came to us. So when we say there is a way to be saved, we can say it with surety because Jesus came to us. It's not somebody sat out under a palm tree and figured it out. God has, came to, has come to announce it. There's surety in this. There's equality. We're not all experts. We, we don't have uh, special insight into anything specific. God has given everyone access to salvation. He has told his church, go out and preach the gospel. Make it available to everybody. So there's, there's this equality. There's no one group that is going to get a, a foot in first. All people have access to salvation through Jesus Christ. There's hope. The hope is our salvation isn't based on our adherence to a path. It isn't based on, do I have the stamina to climb the mountain? Our salvation is rooted in the fact that Jesus Christ came and did it all for us. So I don't have to worry, am I going to make it up the mountain? Jesus has done it all. And so in this exclusive claim of Jesus saying, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, there's hope. We can trust in that. There's clarity. Any counterfeit stands out if we have one touchstone, and that touchstone is Jesus Christ's resurrection. If anybody comes to you and says, any other gospel, isn't that what Paul said in Galatians? If anybody comes to you and preaches any other gospel, let them be damned to hell. I say it again. If an angel from heaven or even I should come and preach to you another gospel, let them be damned to hell. That's what he says in Galatians. So when you have clarity like that, that says, here is the gospel. God came down for you. God died for you. He, he took your sins upon himself. He buried them, and then he rose victorious over your enemies of sin, death, and hell. There is clarity in that answer, rather than, and here's 14 other options. There's just, it just is mind-boggling. This, this clarity is so hopeful. It's such a ringing bell in a noisy environment. And finally, there's grace. It's not like God is sitting at the top of the mountain going, I hope somebody finds the right path. They better hurry up because the uh, mountain's getting ready to blow any second now. My, my wrath is coming. I, nobody's shown up yet. Hopefully they'll make it. There's grace. God is giving his church time to make disciples. Jesus told us, go to every nation and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. And lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. And then Peter, in, his, in, in 2 Peter 3.9, he says that God is not slow in keeping his promises as some count slowness. He's patient, not waiting anyone to perish, but waiting for all to come to repentance. So this is the grace. Is it's not like you better rush up that mountain. You better find that right path and hope it gets there. God is saying, I am, I am open to period of time. I've commissioned my church to carry forward this message. And with great patience, I am waiting until we gather all the people. 
until all of my people come up the mountain, then I will come in judgment. So there's grace in this one approach. But if there's multiple approaches, you can't even be sure if God is going to judge or when he's going to judge or what the judgment will be looking like. But we have this grace and this, this exclusive claim that Peter made. There is salvation in no other name, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. So one of the quirky ways to read this um, is to say it, it's called universalism. And, and what they say is, yes, what happened is Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came and he died, and he made salvation possible for everyone, even people who don't know him. So you don't have to know who Jesus is. If you believe that God is whatever it is, and you sincerely and honestly follow him, Jesus has made salvation possible for you without knowing who Jesus is. Peter shut that door, didn't he? There is salvation in no other name. Not no other path, no other name. It's the name of Jesus by which all men must be saved. So this, this, this exclusivity, it, it goes beyond just Jesus has made salvation possible for everyone. It is through the name, through the work of Jesus Christ, there is salvation available exclusively. And if you look at this and you think, well, yeah, well, Peter's preaching in a Jewish setting, and so they all pretty much largely agreed, right? Peter is preaching in a multicultural setting, probably as diverse as ours. They're the Sadducees. The Sadducees only believe in the five books of Moses. They don't believe in resurrection. They don't believe in, in spirits. They don't believe in saints. The Pharisees, however, believe the entire Bible. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in, in angels and spirits and those kind of things. So there's diversity right there. Then consider where they're at. They're in the temple, but they're in Roman-occupied Judea. Rome was great. Worship whatever you want. Just make sure you work. One of those things you want is the, the emperor, and we're good. So Artemis, your thing, you go for Artemis, but make sure you bow to the emperor once in a while, too. So they were very broadly tolerant. There were numerous different cults at the time. And Peter comes into this, and he, he looks at these leaders of his religion, the, the head of his religion. He's Jewish. And he tells them there's no other name on earth by which men must be saved but Jesus Christ alone. Peter was preaching into an aspect of multiculturalism that is similar to what we're facing. So when people come to us and say, well, what do you mean? Um, Jesus is the only way. How can you say that? What about these sincere Hindus and Buddhists? There is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And it will meet with resistance. That's what Peter got. So Peter's challenge is the same thing as our challenge. We're facing the same difficulty. This multicultural, multi-religion, including no religion, all of that, faced him and he spoke with clarity. He spoke with direction. He spoke the name of Jesus Christ. We do the same thing. So that's the opposition to the gospel. Um, oh, yeah, one more thing I wanted to say about this is this idea of, of multiple paths. Have you ever heard, go ahead and put up the other slide. Have you ever seen this illustration before? A bunch of blind men are examining an elephant. And they have different stories. So the one looking at the, the trunk says, oh, this is a snake. And the one that touches this, the uh, tusk says, no, it's a spear. And then the one grabs the tail and says, no, it's a, it's a, uh, a rope. And, and this was used to explain how different religions are all trying to say the same thing. 
They're all, they've all got pieces of the truth. And if we all just accept all the religions together, then all these pieces of the truth will fit together and we'll, we'll, we'll understand what the truth is. You ever heard this before? There's a problem with this. The person saying it assumes they see the entire elephant. The person saying it assumes they're not blind. The person saying it is looking down on other religions and saying, this is my opinion. This, I, I understand what you think you understand. Let me explain to you your religion for you. It, it, it's arrogant, isn't it? That's, that's John Hicks saying, as soon as you say that one religion is right, you're being exclusive and intolerant and arrogant. You're a bad person. Well, your religion just told me that, so you must be horrible and wrong and intolerant yourself. So if you ever have this, this illustration used to you, if somebody ever talks about you know, the, the different parts of the elephant, ask them how they know it's an elephant. How did they arrive at the conclusion it's an elephant? How did they stand back and look at it? Aren't they trapped in their same cultural norms and aren't they stuck hanging onto a tusk or a leg or something like that? that that's, that's the other half of that multiple paths or different definitions of God. Um, as evangelicals, we are quote unquote stuck with exclusivity because Jesus said it, because Peter preached it, because the church believed it. So it may be difficult, it may sound intolerant. You may know a very kind, very loving Buddhist or atheist, and, and it just pains you because you care for them so much to look at them and say, but you're wrong. That may be difficult, but think about the next step. But they're wrong. And true love, a love, a care for them would lead you to explain, there is one name under heaven by which men must be saved. And I'm not talking about a trunk. I'm not talking about a tail. I'm not talking about ears. I'm talking about a person named Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead. So that's the importance of the exclusivity. And that meets with opposition. You go ahead and put the next one up. That, that, that meets with opposition. It just does because it sounds intolerant, because it sounds so confined. So that's Peter's statement. And here's the opposition now to the opposition. So Peter has announced Jesus as the only way. And they've opposed it. Now, here's how it goes. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated common men and they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. We don't like your message. We don't think you're qualified to speak on religion. But we have a problem. There is a man who's 40 years old who has never walked in his life who's walking now. That overrules, that trumps all of your qualifications. And they're stuck on that. They can't get past it. Their response is, um, what should we do? A notable sign has taken place through them, and, and everybody in Jerusalem knows it. We can't deny it. A rational, reasonable response would be, this notable sign has taken place. Perhaps we should stop and consider the sign. They're unable to do that. Instead of considering the sign, they go, okay, how can we spin this? How can we make this go away? Because we can't deny it. We'd look like idiots if we denied it. But if we acknowledge it, well, we get problems. So they tell the apostles, don't preach in his name anymore. We'll just make religion go away. We'll wave our hands, and they'll just stop talking about him, right? Right? Because, you know, a notable sign has happened, 
they'll just stop talking because we ask them politely. And Peter responds, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So you got, what Peter is just saying is, look, we are going to keep talking about what we have seen and heard, not what we made up, not what we read on some, some uh, uh, stone wall someplace, but this is the Jesus Christ that we've seen teach, that we've seen heal, that we've seen walk, that we saw resurrected from the dead. We are going to continue to talk about him. Now you guys, your role is to decide whether that's right or wrong. And if it's right, join us. If it's wrong, then do what you must. But Peter says, we are going to continue talking. We can't stop. And so they further threatened them. We're going to beat you up if you don't stop talking about Jesus. They, they threaten them because they still cannot come to repentance. They still can't step over that threshold and get to the point where they can go, wait, something notable has happened. Instead, they threaten them and they found no way to punish them because of the people. And the man standing beside them was 40 years old. There is a word today that you have heard a thousand times and it is twisted and distorted and you wouldn't recognize it anymore. The word is tolerance. Have you heard that word? We have to be tolerant of one another. In its classical understanding, in its, its original definition, what tolerance meant was, I totally disagree with you. I think you are dead wrong in, in what you're saying, but I will tolerate, in, order, in other words, I will allow you to express your opinion, to have your opinion, to acknowledge that you have a right to exist as a human being. I think you're wrong, but I will tolerate in that I will let you be wrong. That, that's what tolerance used to mean. So that's what tolerance was. That in, in the 1600s, the, the king in England passed what was called the Acts of Toleration. What was going on before that was the throne was oscillating back and forth between Protestant and Catholic. And by Protestant, I meant Anglican. So if you were Presbyterian, you were kind of kicked back and forth, and the Baptists got the worst of it because no matter who was on the throne, nobody liked them. That's just the way it was. And so the, the Protestants, the, the Puritans, the, the Baptists, those folks, finally got a reprieve when the king passed the Acts of Toleration in 1689. That meant, we believe you're dead wrong. The state religion in, in England is Anglicanism. The head is the, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, the, the book by which you should follow are the 29 articles. That's what we believe, but we're going to tolerate you. That's what tolerance used to mean. Today, what tolerance means is, agree with me. If you don't agree with me, if you look at me and tell me I'm wrong, you're being intolerant. You're not, you're not allowing me to be who I am. You're, you're saying that there's something deficient about me. So isn't this what's going on here with Peter and, and James and the, the ruling elders and everybody? Is they say, keep, stop talking about it. Don't, don't speak it anymore. Never say another word about it. There's no tolerance there. They're not tolerating him. They're allowing them to live because if we execute them like we'd like to, the people are going to get upset. There's no toleration there. There's no tolerance. There's no way that, that they're going to say all beliefs are true and valid. And so today, when you hear the word tolerance kicked around, uh, be really careful before you engage somebody with that word because you have to understand what they mean by it. A friend of mine once told me, um, I am intolerant of anybody who's intolerant. And he meant it with the irony that was involved. And so my response was, good heavens, who's going to save you? Well, what do you mean? I said, you violate your own law. You've decided what the ultimate good is, and then you violate it. What are you going to do? 
How are you going to how are you going to resolve this if you're intolerant of intolerance? You didn't get it. I was trying to say you've violated your own law. You need somebody to save you from your own law, or you need to redefine tolerance. So one of the things that that will often be quoted is, well, you know, other religions are tolerant of other religions. Hinduism, there's a million gods. So yeah, throw Jesus in there. They're tolerant, aren't they? Well, what about Hinduism or I mean uh, Buddhism? Buddhism is really popular. It's kind of a growing thing these days. It's really hip in Hollywood. Is is Buddhism tolerant? Do they believe all paths lead to the top of the mountain? In 1990, the Dalai Lama was asked, um, is this truth only available in Buddhism? And what he eventually got to as he was talking through it was, um, yes, if we're talking about nirvana, if we're talking about this, this state of enlightenment, of freedom from the, the stains and corruption of, of reality, yeah, you're only going to get that if you're a Buddhist. But Christianity is the one, especially evangelical Christianity, is the one that keeps getting the black eye for it because we're so intolerant. You can't be tolerant the way the world would like us to be tolerant. Well, you can be a secular, which is you can believe what you want, but don't talk to anybody else about it. Did Peter do that? Peter went into the temple and he said, look, I believe something to be absolutely true, and I've got to tell you about it. You've got to hear it. So this is the final act. The opposition to the opposition is we have no way to stop this. This will come up again. We're not done with this subject. This is going to come up again in Acts. But the way it works now is Peter has been told, be quiet. And Peter's response is, you guys do what you think is right, but we can't help but talk about this. It, it, it is just such a living, vibrant, real presence with us that we have to speak about it. So that's where Peter goes with it. And that's the end of the, the, the story so far. There's going to be more involved. This is going to come up again and again. Christianity constantly runs into world secular um, intolerant religions that say we're the only way and you're wrong for saying you're the only way. Um, what are we supposed to do with this? Well, let Peter be a, a help and instruction to you. Stand on the truth. This isn't just you out there against the world. This isn't Peter contramundum. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Peter. And what happened? That little throwaway sentence, the number increased to 5,000. Even in the face of opposition, even when the religious leaders go, nope, that's not true, the Holy Spirit's able to reach over those boundaries and grab people. He's able to bring repentance to folks. So don't be intimidated by the intellectuals who scoff and tick, click their tongue and roll their eyes at you because you're, you're just an evangelical. You believe what? How stupid can you be? You talk to your invisible friend in the sky and that scoffing, mocking attitude, don't, don't be intimidated by that. You have something they don't have. You have something that you want them to have. You have the Holy Spirit. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You have the assurance that he rose again from the dead, even though it sounds stupid to them. So don't be afraid of the opposition to the opposition, too. Be assured that you have a gospel truth that needs to go out. And don't forget 2 Peter. God is patient. He's waiting as the message goes forward to call people to himself. You get to be part of that. You get to be engaged in that great commission, going and making disciples. And so what we're seeing in this most vulnerable spot in church history, 5,000 people total believe in Jesus Christ. 
what we're seeing is the power is not in the numbers. It's not in the strength of the movement. It's not in the political clout of the movement. It is in the Holy Spirit working through the people in the movement. And the gospel goes forward. So that's our hope. That's our trust. And that's what we're banking everything on. Holy Spirit, come and work. We're going to be faithful. We're going to preach. We may get slapped down. We may get arrested. We may be fined into oblivion, but we're going to preach. We can't help but. And that's the hope that we have. That's what it looks like for disciples to make disciples. Let's pray. Lord, Holy Spirit, there are many obstacles uh, in the Antelope Valley to people believing in you, to believing in Jesus Christ, to trust in the resurrection, to hope in God and his patience. Lord, there, is, um, there are distractions around every corner, uh, cell phones crammed in our face, um, television shows that scream that there is no God, um, products that promise a form of salvation and that you'll lose weight and look pretty and have nice eyebrows. But Lord, they're all false. And so Holy Spirit, would you come here in the Antelope Valley, move past those obstructions, move past those obstacles, those denials, those um, untruths. And Lord, would you draw many to, to Jesus Christ? Would you grant many people here in the Antelope Valley repentance and faith? And Lord, would you show us as a church body, as individuals in a church body, what it is that we can do, what it is that you're calling us to do as you go forward to bring many people to yourself. Lord Jesus, be glorified in our church, in our valley, in our families, our homes, and our workplaces. Please have mercy on America and draw many people to yourself, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.